Hey everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today we're going to have Alex Tabarrok on to talk a little about the coronavirus and economics, a little about the FDA, more of a general episode on what's going on right now. Alex is a professor at George Mason University. He is the co-author of the economics blog Marginal Revolution and provides free economic lessons at Marginal Revolution University. And here he is. I'm Alex Tabrock. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason uh, University. I write regularly about uh, economics at uh, my blog with Tyler Cowan. That's uh, Marginal uh, Revolution. And I've been writing about uh, regulatory issues, including the FDA, uh, for many years now. Great. Now, to kind of get into the current situation we find ourselves in, can you kind of talk about your criticisms of the FDA and the institutional and like structural problems that it had that led to this situation? Sure. So briefly, let's just uh, recap the numerous errors which both the FDA and CDC made at the beginning of this crisis, which have really uh, created a deadly situation for all Americans. Uh, First of all, the CDC uh, tried to develop its own uh, test for uh, COVID-19, and it botched the test. It got the test wrong. And this meant that uh, there was a big delay uh, in uh, getting other tests going on. That was particularly true because the FDA forbid anybody else but the CDC from making and using tests. So at the same time as the CDC botched the test, the FDA was telling state labs and private labs, no, you cannot offer your own test. Uh, And kind of insanely, the FDA had a emergency use authorization. And the idea of the emergency use authorization is that in an emergency, you would be authorized to create uh, these tests. But the crazy thing is, is that first of all, to get that authorization, you have to submit uh, paperwork to the FDA, not just electronically, you actually had to FedEx them a CD, a, you know, uh, a paper and a CD burned with your, uh, with your uh, uh, application letter. Mm. Uh, moreover, the, you would think that in an emergency, you would lift authorizations. But in fact, this was a new requirement. So before the emergency, these companies and uh, state labs were allowed to offer tests. When the emergency comes, they're no longer allowed to offer tests. So again, that created a, a huge number of uh, a huge delay in weeks uh, in offering these tests. Now, in ordinary circumstances, a delay of a few weeks doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you are dealing with an exponential process, when you have a process of virus replication and uh, infection the way we have now, where it is doubling you know, every three to five days, uh, a delay of weeks is many doublings. So this was a real uh, disaster. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually didn't know that it was a new rule. I guess, is there anything from the approval process with like certain drugs? Because I know I, I, I've studied basically how when the FDA is looking at certain drugs, it, it has to go through so many like tiers and like approval processes like over again after it's been approved. Are, are we seeing that now with the drugs that are being looked at? So with a lot of pressure, finally the FDA 
uh, allowed private labs and allowed state labs to offer their own tests. And so we ramped up on the number of tests. We are also um, uh, trying to get some drugs into the pipeline. Now, one interesting thing is that once a drug has been approved for some, uh, for, for some disease, uh, it can be used for any disease. Now, it also happens that new uses for old drugs are discovered all the time. And this is extremely useful in the medical process. This is called prescribing off-label. That is prescribing a drug for a disease for which it was not approved. And this is very common. So if you have cancer or you have heart disease, it's quite likely that you will be prescribed at least some drugs uh, off-label. Often the cutting edge, the best treatment, the gold standard treatment is often an off-label treatment. So we've been looking around for drugs which might work against COVID-19, which are already approved. And those, then those drugs like chloroquine um, can be used right now. Uh, now, you know, President Trump has been pushing chloroquine. Um, I have no idea whether it will actually work. There's some evidence, very limited evidence, that it might be useful against COVID-19, but we don't know that yet. But my point is that if the drug is off-label, if the drug is already approved, then we can use it right now. Okay. Is, do you think that the current policy in the United States is, is effective? Is the lockdown... I mean, in, in the state of Montana here, the governor actually just issued a shelter-in-place order, and only essential workers are allowed to leave. Uh, do you think that that's effective at this point? I think it's the only thing we have at this point. Um, so I do think it's necessary. Um, you know, Montana uh, is, is, is fairly low density uh, to begin with, but certainly for most states, I think a lockdown is absolutely uh, necessary because, again, we have this exponential process, uh, which is doubling every three to five days. And if you can just delay you know, one or two of those doublings and kind of get a handle on the process and slow it down, then that can mean uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, live who would otherwise die and maybe many more who uh, would end up in the hospital, which is not at all pleasant. Uh, if we can slow it down, then we can stop that from happening. So I do think that the lockdowns are uh, important and we won't see the effect of those for at least another by the time, from the time that the lockdown has started, it's going to take about two weeks before you see the effect of those. Mm. But this is what China did, and I think that is what we have to do right now until we have many more tests available. Okay. And then the phrase flatten the curve is being thrown around. Um, and right. the reason to do so is so that we can increase capacity in certain healthcare facilities. Are we seeing that even happen like because I, I think the concern is like well if if we are sheltering in place but you know there aren't any market signals that are causing capacity to increase then what's the point you know if 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 we're all going to get it and capacity stays the same what why are we doing this you know so are you seeing people respond to this so absolutely so i think the markets are actually working uh, quite well um, that is, you know, we're seeing massive increases in the production of masks, in the production of uh, ventilators, 
uh, in the production of hand sanitizers. Uh, toilet paper will be back on the shelves. <laughs> We're not going to run out of toilet paper. That was kind of ridiculous. Um, the shelves are, are filling up. We're not going to run out of food. There's plenty of food available. Um, the supermarkets are working well. Walmart is working well. Amazon is working well. Those distribution systems are working well. Now, we do need to increase the number of hospital beds, uh, particularly in hotspots. New York City looks really bad uh, right now. Uh, New York City may turn out to be our Lombardy. Um, and that is starting to happen as well. The uh, National Guard uh, just built, uh, uh, well, they took over a, a building, the Javits Center, and have turned it into a hospital with a thousand more beds. Mm. So that kind of thing is, is starting to happen. Let me just add one other thing. It's, for shelter in place, it's not just to build capacity. It's also to take away the virus's hosts. That is, if the virus can't find us, okay, uh, then it can't infect us. Right. And if it can't infect us, then uh, you can reduce the infection rate and it'll die off uh, on its own. So having a vaccine would be like the number one thing. I mean, if we had a vaccine uh, and then we were immune, that would be great. But kind of the second best, if you can't be immune, then hide, right? right. So basically what we're doing is we're hiding from the uh, vaccine. Uh, excuse me, we're hiding from the virus. Mm. Uh, but that means that the virus can't replicate. And if it can't replicate, then we have a chance to kill it. So it's not just about waiting for increases in capacity. It's also taking away the virus's hosts. And if we can take away enough hosts, then it won't replicate and it'll die off. With regard to staying in place if if we don't get a vaccine is there is there a big concern for a second wave i know the i know the 1918 um pandemic was it was actually the second wave that ended up killing the most people is that a big concern with this virus uh, uh, absolutely i mean everything is a big concern uh with this virus so i think it's important that we not let up too soon uh, that also was a problem in 19 and 1918. The uh, states and municipalities, which kind of declared victory too early and reopened the schools, for example, they saw a big increase in infection. So, um, so we can't do that too early. Uh, we got to get control of the number of new cases. Uh, once we get the number of new cases down, then I think we can start to do things. There are sensible things you can do and go back to work. Uh, for example, we should all be wearing masks. Uh, we don't need the N95s, the medical masks. Let's leave those for the doctors and the nurses and uh, hospital orderlies and so forth. But everybody can be wearing a, a normal kind of cloth, cloth mask. That's going to be really useful. Um, and I think we can start to go back to work by taking additional precautions like wearing masks, like having daily temperature checks um, at our work. Um, some people may even quarantine at work. That's another possibility for, you know, people working at a nuclear power plant or air traffic controllers. Um, that's another possibility. So there are sort of things that we can start to do um, to get the economy uh, back on track. Once we have the virus under control, we are going to need extra hygiene precautions, but if we have that and we have lots of testing, so we need to be testing people, uh, A, do you have the virus? And B, 
did you have the virus? Mm. Because people who did have the virus, they very likely have some natural immunity. And so those people are going to be great workers. Uh, you know, they're going to have this immunity and they're great to work with. And we can start sending them back to work uh, along with people whom we have tested and who are found not to have the virus. So one of the things which bothers me is, you know, we just did, you know, $2 trillion of sort of uh, a spending, but not enough of it has been focused on masks, ventilators and tests because mm -hmm. uh, that's how we get that's how we kill the virus and that's how we get the economy going again yeah so to kind of get more into that conversation about the economy i i really enjoy the quote and i i actually appreciate that uh the mercatus center has quotes by hayek and um Basiat. uh and the, the quote is nobody can be a great economist who is only an economist and i think that really applies here and we can we can see that through you talking about this virus um, but is this, are we seeing negative effects? Like how bad do you think the current economic crisis is because of, I mean, we're going to see a lot of unemployment and I know the state of Montana is going to be one of the biggest, uh, is going to lose the most employment. So can, do you, do you see us recovering or is there something underlying that? So I, I think we can recover quite quickly, uh, once we have control of the virus. Um, but you know, there's a way I, I put this, a quip, which and I said that, you know, the way to increase GDP per capita is not to reduce the capita, okay? Um, and so the point of that is that ultimately what we care about is not the economy. Uh, ultimately, what we, what we care about is people. And uh, so people are worth an awful lot. So it is going to be worthwhile having a recession even or a restriction in economic activity that is very much worthwhile if we save uh, a lot of people and i think that is uh, um, the situation that we are in uh, right now so this is a very rich country um, we can afford a decline in economic activity it is going to be uh, very difficult on a lot of people i, I don't want to dismiss that um, we have just passed a big increase in unemployment insurance um, so most people will be able to uh, uh, get a substantial amount um, from the federal government. So we're doing what we can to buffet the shock. Um, but ultimately, an economy is about people, and we want to make sure that we keep our people uh, alive and well. Right. And I think that's evident through um, companies like Airbnb. They they They're actually allowing people to stay. I think it was like up to 100,000 people to be able to stay in their in their homes. And I think that's evident in that they are investing in the capital, like you say, because really their customers matter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the uh, market response has been uh, pretty good. You know, 3M uh, has been ramping up their production of masks. Um, there's been some, the Walmart has just done fantastic uh, logistics to keep the uh, groceries uh, stocked with uh, products. So home delivery is, of course, increasing massively. And the internet, uh, the internet has been like our saving grace. You know, people before the crisis would complain, you know, about their cable company and the phone company and, you know, how unresponsive and what terrible monopolies they were. <laughs> and yet 
the internet, the American internet in particular, has been incredible. I mean, we have seen massive increases in teaching online, in doing podcasts uh, like this online. Uh, you and I are talking from you know three thousand miles apart. Uh, we've seen massive increases in you know watching uh, movies on Netflix, and the whole thing has held up. And I think this is a really uh, a tribute uh, to the American uh, internet, the broadband. I mean, it's really working very, very well. Uh, that's something we ought to be thankful for. Right, and like we talked earlier, um, you've you've moved into, or you are teaching online, and you have been all semester in my class. Uh, or all of my classes at the University of Montana have moved into online classes. My brothers who are in high school and middle school are also in online classes. And I think that that's just proof that there's a future there as well, that people should begin to use that. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's been a difficult uh, transition, but actually I think that people will find that online education uh, is actually better. Um, You know, it's going to be, there's a lot of things you can do online. Uh, you know, you can watch it, of course, when you want. So uh, it's asynchronous, right? So that gives a much more flexibility. Like, why should it be that you can watch a movie anytime you want, but if you want education, you have to show up at Mr. Smith's class at, you know, <laughs> nine o'clock on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays uh, and be there for an hour and a half? Like, why can't you get education on demand the way that we get movies on demand? Well, of course, with online, you can. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. There's also advantages uh, with recording, right? Uh, You know, the students are in charge with online education. They can pause. They can rewind. They can go a little bit faster. You know, probably some people uh, listening to this podcast will put it on 1.5 or, you know, (laughs) 1.2, right? So speed it up a little bit. Um, so online education has all these advantages, and I think that this is going to be a, a quite permanent change. Not that everything will be online, but that a lot more, having broken the dam, a lot more education will continue to stay online even after the crisis passes. You, you were mentioning the, mentioning the legislation, I, I think, is it $2.2 trillion that was passed in both the House and the Senate? Um, sure. Can you? Just a few hundred billion between uh, friends. Right. Exactly. And is there is there anything in that legislation that you're particularly concerned about? If you if you've had a chance to look at it. I mean, right now we really just do need to spend. Uh, so I'm not so worried. Um, you know, most of it or a large chunk of it is sort of unemployment insurance. And we've created a bunch of uh, incentives for firms to keep on their workers, mm-hmm. even when they're not using them, giving them some tax breaks and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's all pretty pretty wise and pretty necessary. I mean, literally, the government is telling people, don't go to work. So I think it's also incumbent to make up some of those wages uh, when you're telling people, don't go to work. Um, so I think that I think. Basically, the legislation on that, on the insurance score, makes sense. But as I said, what I think is very worrying is that we're not spending enough to actually combat the virus. Uh, I would like to see, for example, a billion-dollar prize for a vaccine. Um, that would just be the start. Um, I would like to see a lot more money you know, to build, uh, to make testing much more extensive. Basically, we should be testing uh, millions of people every single day. 
and we're nowhere near uh, that. So I think that we've done fairly well on the insurance aspect, but we've got to do much, much more on actually fighting the virus because if we can get the virus under control, then the economy will come back. Mm -hmm. So this is cheap. Spending on combating the virus is cheap because every day that the economy starts back earlier, you know, is hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So this is a like real high benefit to cost uh, set of spending. And now to kind of change topics here, um, we did talk about education. Can you can you give a little more information about what the Marginal Revolution's mission is and what you're teaching there? Sure, happy to do that. So first of all, Tyler and I have a very long-standing uh, blog, Marginal Revolution, and uh, you can read you can read that every day. There's something new every day, and we talk about economics, the virus, all kinds of things. Um, a spinoff of that, if you like, has been MRU, Marginal Revolution University, MRU.org. And that is um, an online economics uh, platform for an online platform for teaching economics. And there we've created hundreds of videos um, and two complete classes. We have a complete class in the principles of microeconomics and a complete class in the principles of uh, macroeconomics, all with high quality videos uh, for teaching economics. So we're sort of like the the Khan Academy of economics, uh, if you like, but much higher quality than Khan Academy, at least in production values. Okay, and then the Mercatus Center, it's independent from the George Mason University, is that is that correct? Correct, the Mercatus uh, Center is a think tank. It's a think tank associated with George Mason uh, University and headquartered at George Mason University. And many of the professors uh, at George Mason University, including myself, are associated with the Mercatus uh, Institute. And um, it produces a lot of uh, public policy research on questions of the economy and society. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. If you want to just tell people where they can find you, and uh, then we'll let you go. Sure. It's been great talking with you. Uh, you can find out a lot more at my blog with Tyler Cowan, marginalrevolution.com. Uh, and that'll lead you to mru.org as well. Um, but basically at Marginal Revolution, that's that's my home for the next uh, couple of months at least. Awesome, well thank you so much. Good talking with you.